Hey, good morning. Got this mic on. Are you wide awake? Ask Lewis if he got the got the memo. Um, uh, he's supposed to order Starbucks for everybody, just in case you begin to doze a little bit and keep you wide awake. I'm the proverbial pinch hitter. You know, the guy who doesn't make the team, but when he gets up to bat, you expect him to hit a home run. <laughs> I heard that line the other day, and I liked it. Uh, I'm going to try my best to hit a home run. But I'm going to be doing it with my hands tied behind my back a little bit. I don't have the, uh, the wonderful advantage of uh, Mark's PowerPoint. Philip is, is uh, out of pocket also with Mark, and uh, separately, I think. So, but anyway, I've given you a very extensive, uh, far more than you wanted probably, uh, a compilation of materials that were handed out. I want to be sure everybody has one. Would you raise your hand if you don't? And I, I think we've got plenty. If uh, we could get somebody to deliver those down here, raise your hand high and keep it up uh, because you will need it uh, in one particular part of the lesson. I'm going to be referring specifically uh, to what I've copied there, printed. And uh, do, do we, have we run out? Do we have plenty more? No, we have plenty. Raise your hand right here. Uh, who else needed one? Everybody has one? Great. Thank you. Okay. I thought I saw a hand still. Yeah, keep your hand up if you don't have one. Um, I want to I begin by telling you that uh, what you already know, and the point I want to make is that my saying it doesn't make it true, but that's going to be uh, in line with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Our topic this morning is a New Testament canon, but what I want to tell you initially is that you are blessed. You are blessed as a class to have a teacher like Mark. Mark is absolutely one of the busiest guys I've ever been around in my life. He is, uh, he's got so many irons in the fire. He's got so many people to deal with. He's got so many business concerns. He's got so many new ideas. Uh, he is just, uh, he, he makes you tired just, uh, just kind of being there, you know, just, just watching a little bit. But he is intently, he is zealously, he is incredibly concerned about this class. He wants it to be the best it can be. You know that. You wouldn't be coming. You see that evidenced everywhere. He's in the middle of an incredible trial up in Atlantic City right now. has been for several weeks. And in the midst of that, he knows he's not going to be here this Sunday. So what does he do? He can't find time to talk to me about it down here in Houston when he's here for that very, very brief time. So he flew me the other day up to Atlantic City. And I got a chance to visit with him one evening. Right before he met with 50 lawyers, I think it was, who were going to get their act together for the next day or deal with a redirect or whatever it was, I had a chance the next day to be with him in the courtroom. I was so excited to be able to see him in his element like nothing else, like no before. I, I'd seen him in Angleton a couple of times, maybe more, but I wanted to see it again. I got in there, and instead of Mark being up, it was the, as he calls them, the bad guys. <laughs> It was the other, the, the Merck company, and their lead lawyer was a, was a female, an older lady, who was, uh, I, I, all I can say nicely is that she was the opposite of Mark. Her delivery was slow, in fact, so slow that I thought she had gone to sleep at one point. Not just the, not just the jury, but I thought she had. In fact, at one point, I promise this is true, she raised her hand and she said, Nothing. She, she looked at the judge and she said, 
Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I lost my train of thought. And the judge looked at her. She was a very nice judge. But she said, do we need to take a break? I thought to myself, I wish she had said, not only did you lose your train of thought, you lost the track, the map, the destination. (laughs) But uh, anyway, I did get to see Mark later that same day for about an hour or so, do a, a redirect, and it was fascinating. We are really blessed. But my saying that, and my talking about Mark as a good teacher, and the incredible time and effort that he puts into our class and our lessons doesn't make it true. All it does is simply confirm what is a truth that you already know. As we talked this morning about New Testament canon, when the councils met in the 4th century and uh, made a pronouncement, the synods, the church councils, made a pronouncement, they said, this will be the New Testament. This will be, or these are the authoritative books that are in the New Testament. They only stated clearly in an official decree what everybody else already knew. In almost every case, the New Testament canon was already pulled together. The very first time, it's in your lesson in there, the very first time that the, uh, that the list as we have it, with 27 books just like we have them, Matthew through Revelation, uh, not exactly in that order, but the same books were put together like that are listed. The first canon or list or standard that, uh, that was put together like that was not until uh, Athanasius, bishop of uh, Alexandria, uh, put it together. And that was well before the uh, synod confirmed it later on. Let me get an exact date on that. Uh, Athanasius's uh, uh, list was in 367, 367 A.D. And uh, so that's a long time. You think, well, goodness, Jesus, uh, you know, gave His teachings and He was uh, crucified on the cross, resurrected back around 29 or 30 A.D. And Mark's explained about the calendar to you, if that surprises you. But, uh, you know, why so long? Well, it was a long, gradual process... Nearly 400 years, you might say, or at least 330. But it may surprise you. I hope it doesn't surprise you to know that almost all, by far the the nucleus, the largest part of the New Testament, as we know it, was already approved, used, universally accepted by um, about 170. So 200 years earlier than Athanasius' list uh, given in 367. So, here's the, uh, the main point I want you to know, is that it was a process, it took a while, um, but it was, it was happening gradually, imperceptibly, I believe, uh, it spread out over quite a period of time. I began the lesson this morning, and what you have in your hand, with uh, one of the factors, with, with incidents, there's three of them that I've cited on the first page there that are fascinating to me. They take us back to the lessons that Mark gave on martyrdom. In February 303, Diocletian, who was a Roman emperor and who was notorious for his opposition to Christianity, it was one of his underlings who really led against the Christians. He had divided the empire into two parts. And uh, he he, uh, 
let Galerius really have his way, so to speak, which was to attack Christianity. He put up an edict in February 303 that said, all Christian scriptures and their liturgical books should be surrendered and burned. Church facilities or buildings should be demolished. Uh, we're talking major persecution uh, 300 years after its beginning, or not quite that many. Uh, there are numerous documents that record how that edict was carried out against early Christians. And I've given you three incidents there on the first page. I'm not going to go through all the details of those three for sake of time. But I'll simply say that in every case, the Christians had the challenge to hand over the documents. Remember now, we don't have multiple copies. We don't have books like you have. How many Bibles you got in your house? I bet you don't even know. <laughs> You've got them in drawers, you've got them in closets, you've got them. In fact, I've got to pause here and tell you a great story. Hold that thought, okay? <laughs> uh, Kathleen Norris tells in her book, Amazing Grace, a story about, uh, about a Bible. And I thought it was great. She's a writer. She and her husband were eating in a local a restaurant where they were just visiting uh, before she wrote this book. And she said she had met the guy at the next table and they had visited, but they didn't know each other well. This older gentleman named Arlo um, was about to go into chemotherapy because of a diagnosis of cancer. So that particular night, he was especially talkative. It was almost like he was sitting at their table. Have you ever been at those restaurants where the tables were so close that you could hear everything they said? <laughs> well, this is a romantic evening, isn't it? <laughs> well, anyway, Arlo was really chatting them up, so to speak. And when he found out that she was a writer about religious things, he began to tell about his grandfather. When he got married, his grandfather, who was a, quote, and I won't use the word, good Presbyterian, a blank good Presbyterian, um, he gave Arlo and his wife a brand new, beautiful, white leather with gold lettering and embossed name and, and uh, uh, date of their wedding on it in a box. And Arlo prized that Bible, but he left it in the box, and eventually that box ended up in the closet. But he noticed that every time he saw his grandfather, the grandfather said, How do you like that Bible? How do you like that Bible? Well, how do you like that Bible? And the wife had sent a thank you note. The, uh, you know, they had told him thank you repeatedly every time he asked the question. But after a while, Arlo got very curious. Why does he keep asking me about that Bible? He's a very religious man. He wants me to read it. And Okay, well, so finally he dug it out of the closet. He took it out of the box and he opened it up. And right before the book of Genesis was a $20 bill. And he turned to the beginning of Exodus and he found another $20 bill. And before long, he figured out at the beginning of every book of the Bible, <laughs> there was another $20 bill. And granddad was so afraid he wasn't going to find him. <laughs> Arlo said, Arlo said to, uh, to the Kathleen and, and her husband, she said, he said, you know, I could have made a lot of interest on over $1,300 if I just read my Bible. <laughs> Great idea for a Bible if you've got that kind of cash laying around, you know, to encourage somebody to read it. Of course, I don't know if Arlo ever got around to reading it. He just looked at the beginning of every, uh, of every, every letter, probably. Okay, the question is, 
when the police raid Serta in, uh, in what is now Algeria, when the three ladies are on trial before the prefect in Thessalonica, and uh, much earlier in 180 when the, uh, the interrogation is going on for, uh, the, the, I think it was 12 people who in Carthage, in every case the question is, what documents of the Christian writings do you have in your possession? What do you have in your satchel there? What do you have in your cabinet over there? What do you have in your closet over there? They didn't have multiple copies with leather bindings and nice lettering and those thin, you know, special pages. What they had were scrolls in most cases that they prized. The parchments that were brittle from use and worn out and and falling apart. But prized, they were cherished. Which parts of those are you going to give to the to the officials so that they can go burn them. In every case, in these stories that I've given you on the first page, these people were executed because of the documents that they had in their possession. In one case, they they were resistant to death, to giving those documents to the Roman officials. My question to you is, is there any part of the Bible that you cherish that much? And I ask myself that question. Later in the class, uh, I have a note in the points for home that, that mentions that through the, all the centuries of the development of the New Testament canon, there's been a discussion, especially in the last few centuries or years since the Reformation, about a canon within the canon. Do you have a canon within the canon? In other words, do you have certain parts of Scripture that you really like, that you really hear, that you really obey, but there are other parts that you want to just get out? It's kind of like shopping in a cafeteria, you know, you don't want the mustard greens, you don't want the liver and onions, I don't, but you do want the whatever, you know, chocolate pie. (laughs) These people were compelled to choose between these writings and those writings which ones they would cherish and even die for. We're we're not putting that in that vice, we're not putting that in that pinch. But it certainly was one of the, and really it was a relatively small factor in the development of the New Testament canon. Quick review. What is a canon? Mark uh, reminded us it's not something you shoot. It's not something you take pictures with. Uh, It's C-A-N, one N, O-N. And that word comes from what eventually became what meant standard, a rule, a standard. I used to think it was called canon because these are the books that have been measured and they made the cut. Nah, not right. These are the books that are the ruler. These are the books that have the authority and that's why they were put in the canon and they are used then as the yardstick. Make sure you understand, that's a big difference. They're not what has been measured. Yes, they were judged by a variety of criteria. We're going to list those. But they are, they are what is the basis for deciding what is right in doctrine and life and teachings and, and uh, relationships. And uh, so, so it's very important. And I make this point in the lesson somewhere about canon and authority. Let me go ahead and make this point. There's a big difference between canon and authority. Um, we might think that a book is authoritative because it was in the canon. No, it's not true. What happened over this long gradual process that was 
certainly God at work. There's no question in my mind. I studied this thing. I researched this. I told Lewis more than anything I've presented in ages. And I learned so much more than I'll ever be able to communicate to you. But uh, I, I came away more convinced than ever that these are the books that for a variety of reasons, guided by God, confirmed themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. They confirmed themselves by their message and by their content to be authoritative words from God. Now, you, you probably know that word with a capital W translates the word logos, which is in the beginning of John's gospel, extremely important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? The Word was God. And later in verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the greatest revelation, the greatest Word from God is who? Jesus. The greatest Word, no question from God, is what came in the flesh and what walked and talked and touched and hailed and embraced and cried, and ate, and drank, and slept. Jesus, in the flesh. And, and I say that with great emphasis, because in the early church, the biggest problem was the question, after Jesus was died, had died, the biggest question was, was He really human? Or was it just Jesus, a spirit from heaven, looking like He was human? Yeah, He was human. He wasn't half and half. He wasn't homogenized. He was altogether human and altogether divine at the same time. It boggles our brains. We don't understand that, but that's the key. Jesus was the Word of God. But after Jesus, His literal words out of His mouth became prized and cherished and precious to the early church. And the apostles in the same way. What they said and what they taught then as they wrote... Those became prized. But uh, the point I wanted to make was that canon and authority are two different things. A book is not canonical until it has authority. Paul wrote several passages. I cited one in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, in which he said, no matter what gift you have, no matter what uh, uh, spiritual blessing you have from God, if you have any, and you should acknowledge that what I'm giving you, what I'm sharing with you, is the Lord's command. Paul speaks with great authority. He said, I'm speaking straight from the Lord. And you better listen up. You better hear what I'm saying. Well, you can say his book was, authority, was authoritative from the time it was written, or dictated to the amanuensis, and then carried to the people. It was authoritative, but it wasn't canonical. Are you with me? It became canonical years later... When it was universally accepted, it may have started out in one location with one little church in Thessalonica or in Corinth or in some other of those, of those churches where he wrote. But after it was passed around, see, these books were cherished. They were copied. They were read over and over. In fact, Paul himself said in uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16, he said, uh, I want you to read this uh, to the other churches. He wrote one book to the Galatian churches. That's the way it's addressed. So that, that letter is going to be passed around. It's going to be copied. It's going to be shared. But he said to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 16, get this. He said, I want you to share this letter with the church in Laodicea, and I want you to get 
the letter from Laodicea. What was that letter? Well, we don't have it. I can confidently tell you that we don't have the epistle either from Paul to the Laodiceans or from Laodiceans to Paul. We just don't have it. But it was there in the first century, and Paul specifically said, I want you guys to get it in Colossae, and I want you to exchange these and share them and read them to each other. That's the beginning of how the canon was made. And it was a tedious process. They didn't have... Paul couldn't have imagined our U.S. postal system. As bad as it is, it, it looks great in comparison to the first century. Anybody here ever had a, a, a check lost in the mail, you know? Sure, yeah. <laughs> or a letter or something other even more important. Uh, maybe it showed up, as in my case, months later, you know, shredded. But eventually it made it there. Paul couldn't have imagined a postal system. He certainly couldn't have imagined an email system like we have or anything related to the Internet. He's talking, or he's dealing with these secretaries who write this stuff down. And sometimes at the end of the letter, Paul would grab the pen, knowing that there were prophecies, reports, and letters purporting to be from him that were bogus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. That's a passage where he literally admits there are letters purporting to be from me, he said. And so in many cases, Paul would grab the pen from the amanuensis or the secretary, and he would write himself in his own handwriting the end of the letter, the final greetings. You know, those prayers and those be sure and do this, that, and tell so-and-so hello. And then finally, he would have this beautiful doxology in some cases and this short prayer and the extension of grace and peace again, just like he started with. And then in some cases, rarely, he would sign his signature. Well, we don't have any of those, do we? I wish we did. Boy, we'd put that thing up in a case somewhere and, and probably, unfortunately, we'd probably bow down and worship it and we shouldn't. And that's, what the, that's part of the problem with our faith is that some of us tend to worship the documents and miss the author of the documents. And I'm not talking about Paul. I'm talking about God himself who through his spirit operated to inspire these men like Paul, Peter, and others. Okay, I'm giving you a little flavor for all this. Uh, for sake of time... And I'm really kind of jumping around in the lesson. For sake of time, I want you to go to the last page. Some of you speed readers grabbed this as you walked in and you already have this already uh, consumed anyway, right? Or, or I hope you'll read it when you get home. Kay and I talked about this. She said, honey, you're spending way too much time on this lesson. You're putting way too much into it. And I thought, well, you know, there's going to be two people maybe that take it home with them and really pour over it and learn something. I hope it's more than that. I really do. <laughs> but uh, you'll absorb something from what we're sharing in here. The last, the last page, front and back of the last page, is titled The Muratorian Fragment. Are you there? And some of you are thinking, man, is that a disease or what? What is the Muratorian Fragment? You're looking at the English translation, front and back of that page, you're looking at an English translation of an old, old, old document found by Ludovico Antonio Muratori, and so it's called the Muratorian Fragment. It was published in 1740. It had only 85 lines in some of the worst Latin imaginable. He published it in 1740 as an example of how careless some of the scribes were when they were copying documents. Well, 
I don't know that he knew how important this document really is. It's fascinating to me. When you study it carefully, you find in the text, even as badly as it was transcribed and, and copied by the scribe, you find something that goes all the way back, almost undoubtedly, to 170 A.D. about, circa 170 A.D. Think for a second how close that is to the writing of the New Testament and the, the last documents of the New Testament. You remember when Revelation was likely written? 95 to 100 A.D. So we're talking only 70 years later. This document, Muratory Fragment, was it originally Latin or was it Greek? Debates go back and forth. I think it was Latin from what I read and, and the details of that. For example, I'll just show you an example here. Look on uh, line, on the back page, look on line 67. This is just one little tidbit that I didn't put in the lesson, but it's fascinating to me. This is the kind of stuff Mark would like. Um, notice in verse, the line 64, all the lines are numbered on the left uh, edge. Um, line 64 names uh, the Laodiceans and then another to the Alexandrians. These are letters that that the uh, Muratorian fragment is saying, reject these. These are bogus. They are, they are, they're here, they're around, they're, they're being passed around uh, as if they're acceptable, but they're not. And, and the reason he says they're not is because they are connected to the Marcion heresy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But notice verse uh, 66. He said, which cannot, and several others, which cannot be received into the Catholic, meaning universal church, Everywhere you find in here the word Catholic, it doesn't mean what it means usually today. It means universal, the church at large, the church everywhere. He says, which cannot be received, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. Well, why is that significant? Well, if you could look at the original Latin, gall is fell and honey is mel. We are dealing with a Latin proverb here, a rhyme if you please. Uh, a, you know, a device that sometimes like preachers use alliteration, you know, and they outline their sermon with all words that kind of sound alike, and they start with D or C or whatever letter, you know. I get tired of that, by the way. Um, <laughs> I never did it, and I don't care for it. But anyway, um, the point I'm making is that I think it was originally Latin because of this little thing, this, this little rhyme that was put in here with these two words. He's making the point, hey, you don't mix heresy with orthodox teaching. You don't mix a good thing with a bad because the, bad, the good thing is going to be ruined by the bad. The poison is going to mess up the honey and you won't be able to enjoy the honey. In fact, it might kill you. Okay, so that to me is argument for it. It's being original Latin. But let's go back to the beginning of this document, 85 lines. The beginning is mutilated. In other words, the first few lines are missing. So we know it must have been originally longer than 85. How do we know that? Well, look at the first line. It starts, at which nevertheless he was present and so he placed. Well, when you read the next line, you begin to maybe make sense of that. This is a fascinating puzzle. It's a riddle. You know, you're wondering, okay, what's he talking about? Well, the next line he says, the third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. So the implication is that he's been writing about, this, this first line is about the second gospel. What would that be in our order? Mark, okay. So who is he, what is he saying about Mark? Well, at which nevertheless he was present and so he placed, implied them in his narrative. The brackets are what you add to kind of make sense of it. 
Implication is here that he's already named Matthew, he's already named Mark, and in connection with Mark that he may be talking about Peter because Mark was early on, as early as the end of the first century, uh, Papias was a bishop in Hierapolis in 70 to 140, and it's Papias who starts initially connecting Mark to Peter and Luke to Paul. Why do you want to connect Mark to Peter? Because Peter was an apostle, and that gives him greater credibility because he's writing the memoirs of the apostle Peter. Luke, on the other hand, is, gains credibility by his companionship and association with whom? Paul. He was a traveler with Paul. The whole book of Acts is Luke's writing, and much of it is first-person plural. We did this and we did that because we were traveling together, Luke and Paul and some others. So implied is that you've already mentioned Matthew and Mark, and then you have Luke, and then, you, and then notice I've underlined the... Uh, the books that are in our New Testament. If you look down there, way down to line 34, you'll find Acts. Why so much room between the mention of John in line 9 and the mention of Acts in line 34? Well, if you had time to read, and I won't read it to you, uh, all this comment, observation, and writing about John, you begin to get the feel for what's going on in the canonical process. That's why I wanted you to have this. The Muratorian Fragmatists, he's called sometimes, I'll just call him the author. Whoever he is, we don't know. But he is concerned about the misuse of some of the authoritative books that do make it into the canon. John is one of them. Let me tell you why. John was used extensively, the Gospel of John, along with Revelation, was used extensively by Montanists. The the heresy, the false teacher Montanus, or Montanus, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, and, And he was the guy, you remember Mark told you all about him, he was the guy who was charismatic, apocalyptic, enthusiastic. He, 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 He really, not just pretended, he really thought, I guess, if you give him a a good intention, he really thought that God spoke through him directly. He really thought that he had special revelations from God that should be added to the writings of the apostles. He thought that he and his two lady friends could actually give you something that would supersede even the writings that we now call canonical. So when the book of Revelation, with its hard to understand, easy to misinterpret and misuse contents, When he used Revelation, what does that do to Revelation and its authority? It undercuts it. It made a lot of people suspicious of whether Revelation should be included in the canon. It also did the same thing for the Gospel of John. There was one bishop named Gaius. I mentioned him in the the letter lesson. There was one uh, Gaius, I can't remember what city he's from, but he was a bishop who was so anti-Montanist, anti-the false heresy of the false teaching of Montanus, that he decided, well, you know, I think we ought to just take out the Gospel of John and take out everything else with John's name on it, specifically the Apocalypse or the Revelation of John, in order to take out the the uh, undergirding of the Montanism. Oh, that was a drastic, drastic measure. The Gospel of John is not suspect. There's nothing about the Gospel of John except the Montanist misuse of it. So the the fragmatist here, the author, 
goes on and on about the Gospel of John and how, you know, here's how it originated. He's come up with, with a story about John consulting with other apostles and how that, that would make it more credible. Uh, it, it doesn't. We don't even know if this is true. But what we do know is that he really wants to answer those who have a problem with John because of its misuse by the Montanists. Are you with me? What I've already said now through that little episode is to tell you how important heresy was in the process of development of the canon. Heresy, that is false teaching, was, as I put in one part of the lesson, the heresy factor. It served as a catalyst, Marcion especially, with his brand of Gnosticism, and Montanus especially, both 2nd century heretics, not long after the end of the New Testament was written, Both those guys and their movements, which were pretty big, had an important role to play in the canon because, you see, the church leaders had to answer them, had to react, if you please, to them, and in fact, they needed a basis of authority for doing that. So they were spurred on, so to speak. It was more urgent that they uh, document, that they... uh, be able to tell those who are being persuaded, no, 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 that's not true. Look at this. That may have been the beginning of proof texting, if you please, (laughs) which is another not-so-good thing. You know how people uh, very often preach and teach so that what you got is in the Bible, you just have a, a whole bunch of separate little verses that don't even tie together, but they prove the point, so to speak. I heard uh, uh, James Kennedy the other day on radio the guy at the Presbyterian Church in, I think it's Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, outstanding uh, preacher. But I heard him the other day, and he said, uh, he said, the Bible says there is no God. It does. If you disregard the context, <laughs> the context is what? The fool says in his heart there is no God. You've got to look at the context. Don't miss what comes before the passage, what comes after the passage, even the bigger picture of the whole letter or book or whatever gospel that you're looking at. So uh, anyway, lost my train of thought there. Maybe I need some Starbucks, huh? <clears throat> Let's drop down to Acts at the end of the first page here on the Muratorian fragment. Acts is mentioned, but notice when it's mentioned in line 34, it's the Acts of all the apostles. Well, we know that's not true. If it's Luke's version of the Acts, uh, Luke's version talks all about Peter and Paul. doesn't talk much about any of the others. It names John. It has a little bit about one or two of the others. But it doesn't tell us much about anybody except Peter and Paul. Well, why does he want to make a point about that? I think it's because he's answering Marcion. Marcion was that other 2nd century heretic that I was naming a while ago. Marcion was the earliest to come up with his own canon. And it wasn't a canon in a canon because he didn't keep the rest of the books. He just kept very, very few of what we call the Bible, books of the Bible. Real quickly, what he did, Marcion kicked out all the Old Testament in one fell swoop. All the Old Testament was trash to Marcion. Why? Because the attributes of God that he read about in the Old Testament were not worthy to be attributed to deity in his opinion. You know, the wrath, the vengeance, so forth. He missed the Psalms. (laughs) He he missed the messages of the prophets, I believe, 
and the message of love and understanding. He missed the whole book of Job. He missed so much of the Old Testament, I'm amazed. But he kicked out all the Old Testament. And then he comes to the New Testament. He says, you know, there's only one gospel that I can trust, and that's Luke. But he couldn't really trust all of Luke because he clipped out the first two chapters and all that had to say about the birth, the birth narratives. So he had to edit Luke, and then he came to the apostles' writings, and he, and he chose only Paul. He said Paul is the only faithful apostle, but he chose only ten of Paul's letters. He clipped out the pastorals, and then out of those ten, he had to do a lot of editing every time the God of Israel was mentioned, anytime there was a reference to the Old Testament. So you can imagine a whole bunch of Paul's writings, especially Galatians and Romans, and all that was going to be edited. Martian came up with a tiny, tiny canon. And uh, the fragmentist here, the author of the Muratorian Fragment, I believe, this is my theory, is answering some of that kind of thinking in Marcion and the early heresy when he says, the acts of all the apostles, uh, he goes on and says, as he plainly shows, he says, were written in one book for most excellent Theophilus, you remember that, Luke compiled the individual events that took place in his presence, as he plainly shows by omitting. He goes on to mention some events that are not in the book of Acts, the martyrdom of Peter, ostensibly upside down crucifixion, uh, the departure of Paul from the city of Rome when he journeyed to Spain. There's only a hint of that in Romans 15, but there's a whole bunch about that in a book called the Acts of Peter. Now I have to tell you, if you haven't already said that, in the second century, in the third century, a whole bunch of writings began to appear. And they bore the names of various apostles. And uh, they were bogus. They were uh, false writings. How are you going to know the difference? Well, the process, the gradual process of the filtering, the sifting, and not only approving, but also rejecting was taking place. In this case, he doesn't, the fragmentist does not include the Acts of Peter, but he shows his knowledge of this book, the Acts of Peter, which, prom- which had prominent in it the story of Peter's uh, execution and of Paul's trip to Spain. Second page on the very back of this uh, part on Muratorian Fragment. Notice that he names the letters of Paul. He has 13, I believe it is, letters of Paul. He names Corinthians, Galatians, Romans, and then he starts over. And he names in, verse, in line 49, Corinthians. Then he names Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, Romans again. Uh, Corinthians already again. Then he names again Corinthians and Thessalonians. But here's the point he makes, which is fascinating and bewildering. He says, oh, by the way, notice for sure that Paul, in all of these letters, only wrote seven churches. Why is that important? Well, it's important because of the symbolic value of the number seven. And he even refers to Revelation in which John has church, uh, letters to how many churches? Seven. So he makes a point about John writes to seven churches. Paul writes to seven churches. He did write to Corinth twice. He wrote to Thessalonica twice. But still only seven churches, he makes the point. So what does that mean? Seven is the symbolic number for the whole, the complete, everything. So that means that Paul's letters should be shared with the universal church. That's his point. Just like John's writing in the seven letters should be shared, shared with the universal church. And he makes that point in here about, uh, it's kind of a point of ecumenicity or universality of the church. And that's where he's going with that. So then he comes down to, uh, uh, we already looked at the Laodiceans, line 64. I put a note in your lesson about the letter to the Laodiceans. 
We don't have this letter that the fragmentist is referring to. We just flat don't have it. But later on, toward the close of the third century more than likely, there was an epistle that was written by somebody, we don't know who, in order to fill that little gap that was left by Colossians 4.16. Remember that reference? There was a reference cited earlier about the letter to the church or from the church, Laodicea. We don't have that. Nobody had that. So somebody decided, you know, we need to get that. <laughs> I'll write it. <laughs> and so at the close of the third century, there was this letter called the letter to the, to the Laodiceans. And you know what it is? It's probably one of the most feeble attempts to, to uh, come up with a letter that pretended to be from Paul. All it is is 20 verses uh, of bits and pieces, kind of a patchwork uh, quilt of, of uh, Pauline phrases, primarily out of Philippians. It doesn't add one thing to our previous understanding or knowledge of Paul's writing or his teaching or anything else. And it was easily rejected. It was easily seen through. Jerome in the 4th century said, everybody rejects it. Here's what's amazing. Despite everybody rejecting it, that little 20-verse letter to the Laodiceans, as it was called, made it into the first 18 German Bibles that were printed initially in 1488. That little 20-verse letter to the Laodiceans was even printed in some Bibles in the 16th and 17th centuries. It's amazing to me. But, you know, unimportant. It's not heretical. It's not important. It just was respected in the West, in the Western church, Rome and so forth, for years and years and years, even though others uh, saw through it. Well, the point I was making is that there was lots of uh, apocalypses, lots of books called the Acts of so, so on, someone and somebody else. There were lots that were called the Gospels of so-and-so and so-and-so, like, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Matthias, and so forth. If you look down this list, you'll notice that the Phragmatist says, after he names Jude and two of the epistles of John, we don't know if that's 1st and 2nd John or 2nd and 3rd John, but I put a note about it in your lesson. Then he names... Uh, the Apocalypses of John and Peter, he says, by the way, Peter, the latter, uh, many or, or some are not willing to, be to have this read in the church. That brings up a point. There were some writings that were so authoritative, no question it should be read to the whole church when the church comes together. We didn't have all of our individuals didn't have enough copies, okay? We didn't have any copies. So we, we come together to read the Bible. Um, some, some could not be read in that public hearing because they were not authoritative enough. And the Apocalypse of Peter was one of those. Later he names the Shepherd of Hermas. Hermas wrote the Shepherd very recently, line 73-74, in the city of Rome. By the way, in the original language, the Latin, it only says in the city. We know he's talking about Rome because it's in Latin. And then he goes on to name Pius, his brother, who was in the Episcopal chair of the church of the city of Rome. That's the basis for giving an early, early date to this writing because we know when Pius was, an, was a bishop and we know that this was very recent. The Shepherd of Hermas was written. In fact, that's why the Shepherd of Hermas, he says, was good. It could be read privately, but don't read it publicly. It doesn't have the same superior standing and authority that the writings of the apostles and the gospels uh, have. And then finally... In this little fragment, lines 80, 81 and following, he says, we accept nothing, whatever, of the writings of Ars Arsenus, Valentinus, remember him as a Gnostic, 
and Miltiades, who also composed a new book of Psalms for Marcion, together with Basilides, the Asian founder of the Cataphrygians. Well, that's mutilated lines as well, because Basilides was not the Asian founder of the Cataphrygians. The Cataphrygians are the Montanists, and the founder of Montanism was Montanus. But uh, Basilides was another heretic. And, And you get an idea already. The reason I wanted to expose you to this is because you get an idea from looking at this, which is the earliest canon that we have pretty complete, how much of the New Testament is already universally accepted. That's the point I want to make. Did you get that? I talked a lot to get to that one point. <laughs> so many books already in our present New Testament are accepted universally here, already verified as authentic and as genuine and as real and something you better read and listen to and obey. Now, which books were the last ones to get in? Just a word as we wrap it up here. The books that had trouble getting in, so to speak, and, and, and had questions about their authority were a few. One was Hebrews, and that was the question, did Paul write it to somebody else? If Paul had written it, if, his, if Paul's name had been on it, it was in. But because it has a different style of writing, because it doesn't have Paul's name, because there eventually became more and more question about Pauline authorship, there was a struggle. But Origen was one of the, one of the leaders, uh, uh, a real uh, incredible, outstanding Christian scholar, a teacher in the... Uh, School of Alexandria. Later he came to Caesarea and taught. You, you've talked a little bit about him. You'll talk more in this class. Origen was the one who finally said, you know, I don't think Paul wrote it, but that doesn't matter. Because this book has such powerful teaching and it is so clear in its pointing to Jesus Christ that it ought to be accepted regardless of who wrote it. And that brings up finally the question of what are the criteria. I've given that to you, to you in the class. I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's page 7. Let's take a look, and I'll just review that with you quickly, and then we'll wrap it up. You still awake? Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's look here. I've given you so much more material than I can cover, but I think this is important enough. Page 7, that I, that I want to say a little bit about it. As we wrap it up here. The criteria for the canon. I've already mentioned that Paul knew... As mentioned in the first paragraph here, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, he already knew that there were some writings, he calls them prophecies, reports, or letters, that were supposed to have come from us. They were purporting to be. They are, they're, they're bogus, but they're, they got my name on them, he says. And I want you to know they're not mine. And I'm going to show you what is mine by his, his final writing and his own penmanship, the, the final greeting and the, and the signature. So he already gives us an idea. Of the, he anticipates the need for criteria. And I've listed these for you. The first is apostolic authority. In the second paragraph down here toward the bottom, second half, bottom half of page 7. Apostolic authority. Was it written by an apostle? Can we be sure? In many cases, absolutely no doubt. Paul wrote this, that, or the other. What about Hebrews? Well, I mentioned it here. No, it didn't have Paul's name. No, there was a question. But I talked about that with Origen. What about the Gospels? The Gospels were anonymous. Did you know that? Your Bible has the name of the writer at the top of the first page, but the Gospels originally were anonymous. There was a strong, well-established tradition about Matthew and John as apostles who wrote their individual books. No question about those. Those were brought right in. They were authoritative. But what about Mark 
And what about Luke? I mentioned that also earlier. In the very early attachment of Mark to Peter, as if he were writing the memoirs of Peter. And by the way, there's a reference in 150 A.D. by Justin Martyr, who says, It is customary every Sunday when churches meet, we read from the, quote, memoirs of the apostles. He's talking about the Gospels. We read from the memoirs of the apostles. He could have been specifically referring to Mark because Mark does record the memoirs, the experiences, the eyewitness accounts of Peter in his gospel we call Mark. What about Luke? Well, Luke gains credibility because he's also connected with an apostle and his name, of course, was was Paul. Next page, page 8. I've mentioned a little bit about Peter and about John and about the membership in what is sometimes called the Holy Family, that is the family of Jesus, Jude and James. But let me, let me go on, and by the way, that was important for the reception of James and Jude, those, those books that, that had some question about them. But I'll wrap it up with these, just a quick list of these criteria. Number two, after apostolic authority, number two, antiquity. Was it old enough to be in the apostolic age? Um, the shepherd of Hermas was not old enough. His specific, specifically in the Muratorian Fragment, it said it's too recent. Number three, orthodoxy, what's that? That sounds kind of stuffy, doesn't it? Orthodoxy simply means, does it conform to what we already know as genuine, authentic, apostolic teaching? Is it the same? Does it make the same point? Does it reaffirm? Or does it take us off into some wild blue yonder? Uh, Orthodoxy was important to ask the question, what does this tell me about Jesus Christ? Later, Martin Luther, his his main theme for deciding about the canon, for studying the scriptures was, what is it? What is it that's being said about Christ? Which of these books promotes Christ? And he didn't feel that James, for example, was promoting Christ. He thought it was an epistle of straw. So he put James at the end of his New Testament, but he never cut it off completely like Marcion. By the way, in the Lutheran tradition, there's still a question about four books. You may not know this. There's still discussion about four books that Luther put after a space in his table of contents, and he put at the end of the Bible. And so for German, German Bibles for ages have had the books of James and uh, uh, Second Peter and Revelation and one more, it's in your lesson, that are at the very end. The orthodoxy, the, 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 there's a statement in the Muratorian Fragment I over, overlooked a while ago in connection with Romans that says, uh, in connection with Romans, the note that Christ is the principle of the Scriptures. In other words, Christ is what's being pointed to and is the theme. Number four, the the fourth is Catholicity, meaning is it universally accepted? There were some books that were local. They had local canonicity, so to speak, but they didn't get accepted elsewhere. The book of Hebrews comes up in this connection because the Western church in Rome and so forth accepted uh, Hebrews. I think that's the way it worked, but they didn't uh, in the East. Eventually, no, it's the other way around. Uh, under this point, I've got the note. This criterion was on display with Hebrews when the Roman church accepted it because of its widespread acceptance elsewhere, meaning in the Eastern churches. So universal acceptance. And then five, inspiration. Wow, we could talk for a long time about that, but I won't. The Holy Spirit was operating, enabling these people like Peter and Paul and John to use their own vocabulary, but write the message that was undoubtedly straight from God. Points for home. Number one, God's Word is authoritative. It has the greatest authority of all authority. 
Judge Eccles has authority in his courtroom. I don't know if he has authority at home. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Pardon me. <laughs> we all have authority someplace, I guess. Some of us in the doghouse. <laughs> but God's authority is authoritative everywhere. All the time, anytime, just as authoritative when it was put on those parchments when Paul spoke the word as it is then and today, also today. My question to you is, is God having that kind of authority in your life? Are you giving the God's word that kind of place in your life, your home, your work? Romans 1 speaks about in that beautiful doxology about nobody having authority over God. Nobody counsels God. Nobody gives anything to God because of which God must pay them back. God is, as, as Paul says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Number two, much discussion about a canon within a canon. Question, do you have select parts of the Bible that you ignore? What about what Jesus has to say about money? What, is he, what, what about Jesus' words about the heart, your heart? What about Jesus' words about greed, about sexual purity, and a whole variety of other things? Do you have that canon that you're taking out? Are you looking at the whole authoritative Word of God? And number three, this is so important. I just, I just want to drive it home. I only have on time, to, time to mention it. God is at work, people. Talked with some of you in this last week. And I know from your story and from my story that we have some incredible challenges in our homes, in our workplaces, with our kids, with our careers, with our marriages. But I want to tell you, God is at work. God is working behind the scenes. He was for hundreds of years imperceptibly in this development of the canon. He is also at work in your life if you let Him. And if you pray trusting and confident that it may be outside your lifetime, it may be in eternity that you realize what He was doing. It may be 10 years from now. But God is at work, no question about it. He was at work even using Montanism and, and, and Marcionism in the process of the development of the canon. Isn't that amazing? So when you go home today... Dig out the old book, okay? <laughs> See if there's any 20s at the beginning of the, le of the books. <laughs> Especially those Bibles that were gifts to you. No, what I really want you to do is to treasure this thing. Oh, this is marvelous. This is precious and cherished. Treasure it. Pray with me. God, we ask that you help us to appreciate what you've given us. You've, you've worked incredible ways to bring the word of, of your message to our hearts and lives. People have died, burned at the stake, beheaded by a sword because they cherished these words and these documents that are now so easily available to us. Help us, Father, to, to not just put them on a coffee table or on a special shelf. Help us, Father, to read them every day. Help us to treasure them and, most importantly, to hear and obey. To your praise and glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.